Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Cara, acne can be tough. Whether your kid is just starting to get breakouts or has been struggling with them for years, there's a great product that can help. Phyla is the ultimate game changer. It tackles acne right at its root cause rebalancing the skin's bacteria and packing it with probiotic phages. Phyla harnesses the superpowers of probiotics, tiny warriors targeting and wiping out the acne-causing bacteria. In studies, Phyla slashed acne-causing bacteria by a whopping 90%. Phyla doesn't just fix acne you can see. It stops new breakouts in their tracks. It has no harsh chemicals and won't irritate or dry most skin. Phyla's three-step system is like a dermatologist-approved magic potion. Cleanse, apply serum, and moisturize twice a day. As a special treat for our listeners, you can grab 25% off your first order of Phyla. Head over to phylabiotics.com, enter code PUBERTY at checkout, and kickstart your family's journey to acne-free skin. Check out the link in our show notes for quick access. Hi, I'm Cara Natterson. And I'm Vanessa Kroll Bennett. And we are obsessed with flipping puberty positive. Puberty is a stage of life best described as a roller coaster of physical and emotional shifts. It happens to literally every human being on earth. And it shouldn't be cringy. It should feel, you know, pretty comfortable which is why we started this podcast and a newsletter and why we film slightly ridiculous but informative social media videos. It's why we have a brand that makes clothes that literally feel so comfortable and why we write books too. Our latest is This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. We have built a universe of puberty positivity and it all started with this podcast. We are so happy that you're here. So excited for today's guest. Debbie Reber is a friend of our podcast. She's a parenting activist. She's a best-selling author, a beautiful author, a speaker, and she founded and runs Tilt Parenting, which is so much more than a podcast. It's a community. It's a resource for parents raising differently wired children. Debbie's most recent book is called Differently Wired, A Parent's Guide to Raising an Atypical Child with Confidence and Hope. She lives in Brooklyn. She has a 17-year-old and she is on our podcast. We were just on her podcast. I feel like we just swim in each other's waters all the time because there is so much overlap between what you do, Debbie, and what we do. Thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on to the Puberty Podcast. Oh my goodness. Thank you for having me. I'm still on a buzz from our conversation for my show months ago. So very excited to be <laughs> yeah, here. Yeah, we're so such a we. blast. We're such a blast, Debbie. So we moved the recording of this episode up earlier which as you know, because you host a podcast, normally rescheduling happens. You have to punt stuff and move it later because you're like, oh, I was totally unrealistic about how much I could get done. And the reason we reached out and said, Debbie, 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 can you please come sooner than we asked? is because at every school we spoke to on our eight-week tour, 36 stops, 55 schools, every single talk involved the following question. How does neurodiversity and puberty intersect? Mm. And here's the thing. There was a lot we could answer and a lot we could say. And there was a lot of things where we had to say, you know what? 
we're not sure yet. Or the <laughs> actually, data's... you know what we said? We, we said... actually said, go listen to Tilt Parenting. Yeah, that <laughs> you know, is literally, literally what we that's said. That's what we said at every stop. We were like, well, we just went on an amazing podcast and you should go listen to Tilt Parenting. So that was part of what we said. And part of what we said was like, here's what we do know and here's what we don't know. And we want to learn more and we want to be able to share more information with you. So Debbie, that's why we ruined your last week before break and asked you to come on sooner. <laughs> I am so happy to have the conversation. And especially, you know, often I talk to parents who are in this space or people working in the neurodivergent space. So for me to get to expand and talk with, you know, I call them muggles, but you know, like people who are kind of wanting to understand neurodivergence better, even if it's not personally impacting them, that's super exciting for me. So I think let's start with some definitions because for many people, this feels like a new field and they don't feel super well-versed in it. But as you said, people really want to know and understand. Let's start with the broadest definition of neurodiversity and then let's go deeper on certain, certain definitions. Yeah. So neurodiversity was a term that was founded, really rooted in the autism community. And it really just means that there are natural variations in brain development and brain chemistry that lead to a, a different experience. So it's really more about the variations in the way a brain is wired. And in more recent years, it's been kind of broadened, that definition of neurodivergence has been brought in to really include so many things, learning disabilities, ADHD, sensory processing, giftedness, twice exceptionality. So it's kind of been co-opted almost by these different types of neurodevelopmental differences are now all in this bigger bucket. And it, but it really started with the autistic community. Who's not neurodiverse with such a broad description, right? Yeah. Who isn't and what is normal, right? Because mm -hmm. in order to, to have variances or to be looking at something being different from or othered from, you have to have a, a something that's typical, neurotypical or normal. And we, of course, know that that doesn't exist. So like, and I'm, I'm asking it philosophically, but I'm really actually asking it like, doesn't neurodiversity at some level apply to almost everyone. And I think people are so sensitive about language, which is a wonderful thing. Language words matter. But how is the word used appropriately? And when is it used appropriately? And, and when people are asking about their kid or another kid, help us through that language just a little bit, because then we're going to dive into different types of neurodiversity and ask you some pretty specific questions. Yeah, that's a really interesting question when you think about, as you asked that, I'm thinking about these fidget spinners. I don't know if you remember those became oh, yeah. all the rage, oh, right? Yeah. And it was very exciting. And there was a lot of controversy because they were specifically designed for kids with ADHD to be able to occupy their hands so that they could focus. So it was an accommodation, right? And at first it was something that schools kind of frowned upon because it was disruptive. And then suddenly it's like, well, we, everybody can benefit from fidget spinners, right? And so then it became kind of the norm that we all need this. So it's interesting to think about the language of neurodiversity. I do think we're all different. Everybody, every brain is different. We all experience the world in a different way. We all process our feelings and our experiences and our emotions differently, sensations, all of those things. And I think it can be tricky because it's, we don't want to also then make it seem as if people who are more impacted by, or who require more support and accommodation to thrive in a quote unquote neurotypical environment, we want to make sure that they can still get their needs met. And so it's exciting to see that more and more people, and I think this has happened since COVID, so many more adults have kind of claimed their neurodivergent identities and people have really explored how they're wired. And that to me is exciting because I think we all we all have things going on and just some of us are better at assimilating or masking or fitting into certain environments. But ultimately, I think everyone could benefit by having more inclusive environments where we just celebrate and accommodate for all different ways of being. So 
there were two areas that came up most frequently. And I want to drill down on those two areas because it gets at, you know, the sort of wonderful acknowledgement of where our society has moved in terms of seeing everyone for who they are and trying to meet them where they are. And also people are like learning as they go, plus they're learning as they go as parents. And so there are so many places where people feel really at sea. So I want to ground us in these two specific areas. And so the two areas where people came to us asking about puberty and neurodiversity, one was really as it relates to ADHD. And the other was really as it relates to kids on the autism spectrum. Those were the two kinds of questions we got. And it's complicated, as Cara spoke to, like when we would get a question from an audience member and they would say, how do you handle or what do you know about the intersection of puberty and and neurodiverse children? It's like knowing that neurodiverse could mean 20 different things. Sometimes it was hard to answer that question well without like kind of getting more information. It was much easier when those questions were asked at the book signing table and we could really figure out, you know, what was going on. So I think if we could drill down first on ADHD and then with kids on the autism spectrum and start to explore how those two realities interplay, puberty and someone with that diagnosis, I think that would be really helpful in kind of categorizing the conversation. So Debbie, will you start with like defining for our listeners what ADHD is now and what terminology we no longer use and why? Yes. So ADHD, which used to just be known as ADD, attention deficit disorder. Now it's ADHD includes the hyperactivity in there. Some people still use ADD slash ADHD, inattentive type. You know, there, there are combination combined profiles, but really ADHD or ADD is marked by impulse control challenges. It is a emotional dysregulation, easily distracted, hyper-focusing, inability to focus, spacing out. It's really Ned Hollowell, who is an expert in ADHD and wrote his most recent book, ADHD 2.0, was fantastic. All his books are. But he's like, it's not that we have trouble giving attention or paying attention. We just have too much attention to pay to everything. And so it's almost an excess of attention. And Mm. so it's really a filtering in and honing in, but it, there are so many pieces of it, that impulsivity, that the struggle, um, to maintain emotional regulation in social situations. There are so many pieces of it that make it very complicated for, a young person whose prefrontal cortex is also on a delayed timeline because of their ADHD, their executive function stuff is also on a delayed timeline. So there are all these kind of like stereotypical ADHD kids, right? The disheveled kid whose backpacks a mess and is always running late and doesn't turn in homework. And all of that might be true, but it also might be the chatterbox Nancy in the corner who is spacing out drawing in her notebook all the time. So it it can be complex and identifying, but really it's, it's the way that the brain has to regulate to pay attention could be really honing in or paying attention to too much. So the place where we get specific questions is around brain development and brain maturation. Exactly what you said, prefrontal cortex being online. And the way we describe brain maturation, when we write about it or speak about it, is that there are two things going on. There's pruning, which means taking too many neurons in your brain and shrinking down to keep the ones you use and get rid of the ones you don't. And that's a lifetime process. And then myelination, which is the insulation of the nerve fibers, which allows a much faster send of messages from one place to another. And I'm wondering if you know the answer to this, because I don't, In an ADHD brain, is the issue with the prefrontal cortex one of speed of myelination? Is it that myelination is happening slower? Or is there something else going on in the prefrontal cortex that is slowing their executive function? Knowing that, and just so for listeners who are not deeply steeped in this, the prefrontal cortex is the part of the brain that makes good consequential decisions. It, you know, judges 
kind of if I do this, this will happen. If I do that, that will happen. I should do that. That part of the brain is designed to balance the emotional, more impulsive, feel good part of the brain called the limbic system. So the question of prefrontal cortex maturation is really like, when is that part of the brain going to come on board to counterbalance the impulsivity that we're all designed to have, right? Quick impulsive decisions are part of the human emotional spectrum. And so teach me, help me understand. I don't know that I can give you, you know, the detailed, you know, explanation of the pruning and the myelination process. I would say that the piece we didn't mention here also is dopamine. And Mm -hmm. typically someone with ADHD does not have, they're either not good at producing dopamine or the dopamine doesn't stay in their system. So there's this constant need for those dopamine hits and Mm. um, which is part of that impulsivity as well. So I can't answer your question very specifically. What I hear, the word on the street with the people that I talk to is that, you know, if you think about that prefrontal cortex development, and I don't know what the age is now, maybe 25, uh, 27 that we say that, you know, that's when it's fully developed that with someone with ADHD, you can think three to five years beyond that. Hmm. So when you think about that, When you think about the demands and expectations for a teenager who is, you know, going through puberty, who, you know, we know in middle school and high school, the expectations for what they're doing and having to make these really big life decisions, all of those things. And you think about where are they really from a social emotional age and that ability to think about the consequences of their decisions. It's they're impaired. So two quick follow-ups. One is a call out to our community of listeners. Anyone out there who has the science about exactly what's driving that delay, email us, DM us, share with us the science. We are hungry to know it. The other follow-along question is people always point then to does puberty, the path through puberty get sped up or delayed, which we can get to in a second. But the question I'm going to ask you is, Do medicated kids, kids who are getting a little bit of extra neurotransmitter because they're taking medication to help balance the chemicals in their brain, do they have a different timeline? Is their timeline closer to normal or does the medication they're taking just allow them to have better balance in their brain and make a little bit better sort of executive function decisions, less impulsive decisions? The latter is my understanding when you think about ADHD meds, which also, again, according to Ned Hollowell and um, Russell Barkley, they only work on maybe 70% of people with ADHD. So there's Mm. 30% of kids of humans who aren't supported at all by any of the many ADHD meds available. But my understanding is that, you know, they, they work in the short term. And so there's all kinds of conversations about timing of of the dosage and taking off for winter holiday and summer break and those things. So like any kind of intervention, I actually was helping um, someone who was researching a, a app for kids with ADHD that was supposed to help them learn how to hone in and focus better. And the research was pretty exciting, but it's not, it wasn't a long-term change. Even with the app, it was, you know, a couple of weeks, right? So I don't think we're changing the overall brain chemistry. I think we're supporting in the moment. And that was my understanding of the data. The answer to the path through puberty is the same, that being neurodivergent, having ADHD does not change your timeline through puberty. There's no biological, neurological reason why having a different balance of neurotransmitters in your brain would change the way your sex hormones circulate through your body. So, so same, same. Yeah. But what it does change or can change is the experience of caring for a kid in puberty and the challenges that we've talked about for the last two months about decision-making, impulse control, executive functioning, all the things that can be challenging in any kid of this age. And then layer on top of that, learning differences, neurodiversity, and then you've got a whole other layer of complexity. So Debbie, I'm wondering, before we move to thinking about the intersection of autism and puberty, because that's, I think, going to require 
some different advice and insights from you. I'd love to hear your best advice about people who are feeling frustrated by the ways in which, you know, I like to talk about like how a kid packs their backpack, right? It sounds so mundane and trite. And yet it's like the morning everyone's trying to get out of the house. It is the explosion point, right? It is the landmine or decision-making when a kid is out with friends and there's a, there's a real safety issue. So how do you like to think about it and frame it for parents as they grapple with these issues? Can I say one thing before I answer that question? Yes. Or you can say anything you oh, want. Okay. I could say 12 things. <laughs> well, as you were asking that question about the complexities of going through puberty and the decisions and you know, the heightened emotions and all of those things. One of the things that a lot of people with ADHD also have is something called rejection sensitive dysphoria, Hmm. RSD. And it's something also like over 60% of people with ADHD have RSD. And it is a very heightened sensitivity to perceived criticism. It creates so many challenges in social situations. And if you think about the importance of social emotional development and what's happening in relationships and all of those things, having RSD on top of the ADHD can create a lot more challenges and then add in the hormones. So I just wanted to share that with you because it's- That's awesome. I literally just wrote that down and put a huge star by it because I think that is amazing to connect those dots. Can you give us a scenario, like a practical application of that, how that would play out like in a school or household so people can kind of ground themselves in that? I think for someone with RSD, even a reminder to do something, can you get your backpack ready? Could be taken very personally. It could be that you're criticizing them. You're saying there's something wrong with them. They could react very defensively. So it can be that kind of mundane. It's a real phenomenon and it's something that doesn't really go away. It's Hmm. like ADHD. It's part of the wiring. And so people with RSD have to kind of learn that about themselves and learn how to accommodate themselves in a social situation. You can imagine, you know, if you're assuming that other people are judging you right away, and you're expecting to be rejected in social mm. situations. Is that sensitivity amplified with surging hormones? I would imagine it would I it mean, would have to be. Right, because we know at baseline, just surging estrogen, surging testosterone, and then plummeting estrogen or plummeting testosterone creates a lot of that. So for all brains, there's already that sort of background noise, if you will. And I would imagine that if you're already, it's like a bruise. If you already have a bruise on your shin and then you get kicked there, it hurts so much more. I've got to imagine it's not dissimilar with RSD. Vanessa, we literally have three minutes to eat lunch every day. I am not joking. And the challenge is how to make it delicious and healthy and still fit into that tiny window. Our answer is factors ready to eat meals. They have been a godsend. We throw our factor meals in the microwave. It takes two minutes and out comes a gorgeous, fresh, never frozen meal. We both love the tamale vegetarian one. It's delish. There's a ton of options every week. There's 60 add-ons, breakfast, snacks, beverages. I love doing the wellness shots with my kids. They think it's hilarious. And I know they're getting vitamins and minerals in their bodies. So get meals on your table or at your desk in two minutes or less. Factor meals eliminate the hassle of prepping, cooking, and cleaning. You can customize with flexibility to get as much or as little as you need, and you can press pause or reschedule depending upon your lifestyle. So to order, go to factormeals.com slash puberty50 and use the code puberty50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code is puberty50 at factormeals.com slash puberty50 to get 50% off your first box, 20% off your next box. And I am going to go do that right now because I need more factor meals in my refrigerator. Cara, lately I have been lying awake at night. I'm physically exhausted, but I can't sleep because my mind is so wired with everything going on between work and my family. So I've added magnesium breakthrough to my nightly routine and it actually helps 
calm my mind. It helps me get better sleep. And I wake up feeling better rested. I'm less cranky. And I'm more patient with my family and with you. Oh, I've noticed. (laughs) And it's because unlike other magnesium supplements that might give one or two formulations of magnesium, Magnesium Breakthrough has seven. That's why you're sleeping so well and waking up refreshed. Now, dietary supplementation is always best, Vanessa. So that means eating your minerals and vitamins is the best way to get them in. But if you can't or you don't get enough, Magnesium Breakthrough is the way to go. It can also help digestion, though too much helps your digestion too much, which is not a good thing. It can support muscle recovery. So bye-bye, Charlie Horses. And it helps build dense bones, which is especially important for women approaching and in menopause. We have an exclusive offer for our listeners. You can go to buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash puberty. And you can use the code PUBERTY10 during checkout to save 10%. That promo code is PUBERTY10 at buyoptimizers.com slash puberty, your body and brain and family and business partner will thank you. Cara, my kids love Magic Spoon cereal. And even though it's cereal, they actually love it as a homework snack. The variety pack has four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. And fruity is the favorite flavor in my house. Now, this pack has zero grams of sugar, between 13 and 14 grams of protein, and between four and five grams of net carbs per serving. It's made with wholesome ingredients, no artificial flavors or dyes, and it's high in protein, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. So a great choice, Vanessa. You can go to magicspoon.com slash puberty to grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our, you guessed it, promo code puberty at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident you're going to love their product. It's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. They do not want you to send their cereal back to them. Try a bowl of Magic Spoon cereal today at magicspoon.com slash puberty and use the code puberty to save $5. Yeah. Yeah. And we can, and we will talk about this probably when we start talking about autism, but on top of all of these things, these are also kids who tend to have had negative experiences socially from when Mm -hmm. they were very young in the classroom from other adults. So it's very layered what they're even entering adolescence Mm. with. That's right. So will you walk us through an example of maybe a kid with ADHD versus a kid without and with RSD layered on top of that ADHD? An example of something, as Vanessa said, mundane that might happen in one house that gets amplified in another Yeah. I mean, I think even just a a conversation or maybe having, think about having family friends over for dinner, right. And they bring a a kid along the kid with RSD, the ADHD kid who has rejection sensitive dysphoria, maybe especially anxious about that. They may really struggle knowing how to interact. They may then get emotionally dysregulated and start being impulsive and doing things that are really annoying in that situation. But they're not able to read the room in that moment. Mm. And so they're not realizing they're turning other people off. Those other people, that other child maybe goes off with another sibling that becomes more reinforcement to this same kid that Mm. people don't like me, right? It's just more evidence. So they kind of can get in this cycle, this self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. How do we address impulsivity? I mean, I know how we address impulsivity in the context of brain development. We encourage people to explain to their kids brain development, to have them like read the chapter in our book, or just to just to reassure them that they are works in progress and, you know, to give themselves some grace and they can't always help it. So when we look at kids who have ADHD, who even more so can't help an impulsive decision that is not, quote unquote, a good decision. How do we share with them what's happening, you know, biologically and physiologically without sort of making them feel, 
kind of labeled or blamed or sort of like without having it affect their self-esteem, but giving them information where they actually, it can help them feel better about the ways in which maybe they're struggling to make some good decisions. Yeah. I mean, I think using labels is great. I think that really kind of talking openly about diagnoses and identifications is really important. And that psychosocial education is really important. So yeah, reading your book, reading the books of neurodivergent individuals who talk about their adolescence is great. I just talked with Jonathan Mooney, who if he's not on your radar, he's a wonderful um, advocate. He just visited my community to talk about his book, Normal Sucks. And that's book, I think every young person who's neurodivergent should, uh, should read great book. But so I think that has to be part of it is just ongoing. There's nothing wrong with you, but the one of the things I talk about until all the time is one of the greatest gifts we can give our kids is self-knowledge. We want them to grow up knowing who they are, knowing their strengths, knowing their relative weaknesses, knowing how to ask for what they need and not having shame around any of it. And so we as parents also have to set the tone for that conversation. We have to check our own internalized ableism. We have to check the way that we are framing these conversations. So it's just like, this is what's going on. This is who you are. And this is such an important point because the kids who I've taken care of over the years who have ADHD, many of them, not all, but many of them will at some point push back against medication because they feel like it stifles some of their strengths. Um, Mm -hmm. And in particular, the most creative kids sometimes recognize that as their medication wears off, their creativity hits a peak and they start to connect those ideas in their mind. And they really then become reluctant to take medication, even when it makes them more successful in a classroom, because there are other learning strengths that they have that they feel are getting blunted, which has always been a very interesting thing to me. We reward in school, we reward one type of learner. And, you know, I think it's getting better over time. I think other non sort of straight up book learners are being rewarded in classrooms now. But so many kids have talked to me about this. And the reverse is also true. Things like driving. If you have a kid who has ADHD and has decided not to take medication, say an afternoon dose, let's say they have a short acting medication and they don't want to take an afternoon dose because they for whatever reason, they don't like how it makes their brain feel based on what they're doing. And then they have to get behind the wheel of a car. That's a real choice there. That's complicated choice because there's no question that there are certain tasks that require very clear, uninterrupted focus. Yeah. Dr. Uh, Roberto Olivardia, who's a ADHD researcher, Harvard researcher. I was just listening to an interview with him recently, and he was just reiterating that in unmedicated ADHD, humans should not be behind the wheel of a car. And it was just so good to hear that, like to just say it explicitly like that. Um, And I also just want to say that impulsivity can be a strength. And so I think we often think of that as something we have to work around, but how do we leverage someone's impulsivity? You know, that's sometimes where the best ideas come from. So totally. Yes. Yeah. Totally. I mean, you know, even in its in its mildest form, if you look at risk takers in business, right? You've got to have some impulsivity to push back against people who do things one way in order to be an innovator and do it another way. And I don't think you can do it without some degree of impulsivity. The question is, you know, where does impulsivity become a liability? Where is it a strength and where is it a liability? It's sort of like in medical school, we used to say a little bit of OCD goes a long way, which is sort of a cavalier comment, but there's some truth to it that all of us who went through medical school have just a tiny dose of that brain type. But when it takes over your brain, it makes you less functional in that environment, not more. So it's, I think impulsivity is very, very similar. Yeah. So I want to make sure that we get to autism and I would love Debbie for you to just educate folks a little bit on how the language around autism has changed before we think about how it intersects with puberty. Because for many years, 
there was different language, right? Someone might have Asperger's or someone might be autistic or they might be on the autism spectrum. And now there's kind of new terminology and people aren't using the term Asperger's anymore and kind of everyone is being diagnosed if they're being diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Can you talk about kind of what's happened and and why that is so people feel more confident with that language? Yeah, absolutely. And I also just want to say I am not autistic. And so I'm learning from actually autistic adults. So everything I'm sharing is things that I've learned from other people. So many years ago, not not too many years ago, but the DSM used to have this different classification, maybe 10 or 15 years ago of Asperger's and then autism. Asperger's was something uh, Steve Silberman in his book, Neurotribes, writes about the origins and Hans Asperger and where that language came from. And it was a very distinct profile of these kind of, at the time, very bright, quirky, white boys, you know? Mm. And so considered to be very intelligent and quote unquote, high functioning and not as disabled or impacted. And so there was always this distinction and autism was just seen as something different, right? Much more pathologized, more negative in that way. And so when the DSM got rid of Asperger's as a distinction, again, I'm not sure the exact year, maybe 12, 15 years ago to check on that. And so it all became autism spectrum disorder. And so pervasive developmental disorder, not otherwise specified was kind of lumped in there as well. And so everything was lumped in. And I'll just say when that happened, that was very hard for a lot of people because some people really, and still do really identify as being an Aspie and that identification is important. There are a lot of parents who prefer the Asperger's language because it insinuates that, well, but my child is really smart or is very, you know, quote unquote, high functioning. So it's been really interesting to see it evolve. Functioning labels, high functioning, low functioning are also something that have been very controversial Mm -hmm. and the, the autistic community, you know, I can't say as a whole, but overwhelmingly people in the autistic community reject functioning labels because it's, it's basing someone's function on a neurotypical perspective. Mm. And it may mean that someone masks better. So they seem more functional, right? Or they, they have fewer needs in this kind of public external way, but it's not reflecting their individual experience. So Mm. functioning labels out the door. And so one last thing I'll say on, on the language and it's always evolving. Mm -hmm. So the term even on the spectrum is something that a lot of people don't like to use or saying the person first, right? So a child with autism, a person with autism, the majority of autistic adults prefer identity first autistic person. And so that's kind of where we are now something I pay a lot of attention to. And, you know, I go back to my podcast five years ago, I'm using all the wrong language, but it's evolving and it's exciting to me to see that we're kind of thinking about these, these things. And it is exciting to me to see this kind of empowering, like, this is who I am. It's not something that I have. Mm. I think it's important to add that with the renaming and recategorization, one of the great frustrations was the shifting in access to services. And this was a huge deal for families who are already trying to navigate a very complicated system and a very expensive system. And suddenly certain services felt inaccessible Mm -hmm. to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you have heard of the book, Is This Autism? by Dr. Donna Henderson, Dr. Sarah Whalen. It came out in the past year and they're both neuropsychs. Uh, They do assessments and they have really taken the ADOS, which is kind of like the, you know, they call it the gold standard for an autism diagnosis. And they have gone deep. They've gone real deep and they broke down every criteria and explored what does this actually look like? Because we now know that so many people were missed and are continuing to be missed very often girls, Mm -hmm. um, because we're still kind of operating under this narrow definition that was designed again, using kind of young white boys as the standard. Will you explain twice exceptional to our audience? 
Yeah. So twice exceptionality is a term that I first learned uh, when my kiddo was maybe six. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. But it's basically someone who is gifted and typically using the typical definition of giftedness. So, you know, scoring on one of the the Weschler or one of those scales is being 95% or higher on that. So intellectually gifted and having one or more neurodevelopmental differences. So gifted autistic, gifted ADHD, gifted dyslexia, gifted all of the above. So it's a very complex learning profile. The most fascinating humans you'll ever meet because, oh, they're just so incredible because their strengths are so interesting and they have so much going on and they can be very tricky to support because their needs are so varied, you know? So we know that kids who have disabilities, physical disabilities, who are neurodivergent, who require extra layers of care and services can also be at risk for sexual predation. And one of the issues for people who've come to us to ask about autism and puberty is how do I talk about with my kid these really complex, multi-layered terms in ways that make sense to my kid, in ways they can take on board and help keep them safe in addition to, you know, hopefully God willing, having meaningful, loving relationships in the future. But often the first concern is about safety. Can you talk about strategies that can be effective? I know there's all different scenarios, but like, are there any overarching principles that come to mind for you? I mean, I think one of the things you guys talk about in your book is that it's not one conversation, it's a series of conversations. And I think that's absolutely the same that these are things we want to be talking about from a very young age just in terms of developing social awareness, because one of the challenges that a lot of autistic people struggle with, I mean, first of all, they can feel such deep empathy, which is not something most people think of. Most people think that an autistic person isn't really reading the room, but they often can feel things much more deeply and sensing things that energy and other things that are going on. But they also, it's a social communication difference, right? And so they may struggle to read social cues. So I think even just having those conversations from a very young age, like, you know, you're walking with your child and you notice something makes you feel unsafe or concerned, you know, bringing attention to that. Did you notice that person? Did you see this situation happening? Did you see what happened in the subway car down there? That made me feel concerned. How did that feel in your body? So from a very kind of young age, teaching you know, modeling, trusting our felt experience and trying to help our kids learn and recognize what that feels like to them, I think is really important. And yeah, I mean, you're right. All neurodivergent kids, but especially autistic kids, many of whom are spending a ton of time online, they are more vulnerable because a lot of them are also socially isolated and, Mm -hmm. you know, haven't necessarily found the group of friends or the, the close friend. And so they may seek that belonging in unsafe spaces. So again, I think this is something I know you guys know Devorah Heitner and she talks about um, how important it is to mentor our kids. Um, And I think that just starts early and often and staying maybe more plugged into what our kids are doing online is a really important piece of it. While also recognizing that online might be the best place for them Mm -hmm. to find their people. So we really have to stay deeply connected with our kids so that they'll trust us to talk about when, when something concerns them, but we can also effectively monitor or mentor them. Are there certain therapeutic modalities that work best for kids with autism who are going through puberty? And I'm thinking specifically about group processes versus individual. And, you know, if there's any either data or just experiential wisdom that you have to offer about if there's one better way through or one way through that, that seems to translate a little bit more. I don't know if there is one way through because as with any neurodivergence, you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person. (laughs) Exactly. 
I will say, you know, this is something I think a lot about just therapeutic modalities in general and what's effective for autistic people or neurodivergent people. And I think kind of some of the tried and true things, and I will defer to Dr. Megan Ananeff, who is the person behind Neurodivergent Insight. She's brilliant. She really has dived into this and has said very openly that CBT, which is like a default for so many of us, is really not that effective for neurodivergent Mm. people, Mm. but it tends to be the default. And especially with an older kid, DBT is also typically a default for a kid who's got higher risk or maybe struggling with mental health. And that can actually be completely not effective for an autistic person. A lot of autistic folks, and we're learning more and more about this, also have kind of a very strong demand avoidance, right? Very rigid way of thinking about things, very kind of black and white concrete thinkers. And there's something called PDA. It stands for pathological demand avoidance, which is a terrible name, but it's been renamed by people who are PDAers as persistent desire for autonomy. And Mm -hmm. so someone with a strong PDA profile or your persistent desire for autonomy is going to struggle with the idea that they can change their thinking. They can, you know, kind of shift their thinking and make those changes because they are, no, this is how I feel. Feelings are facts, right? So I think more relationship-based therapies, play-based therapies are really effective. I will say, um, floor time, DIR floor time is a wonderful, way that is based on connection and relationship and play and maybe doing role-playing and exploration as opposed to kind of focusing on consequences or these kind of concrete thoughts. And how about risk tolerance of people with autism? In the ADHD community, we know that there are lots of kids who are risk-takers as part of their impulsivity in the community of kids with autism, do you see a through line there at all? I don't actually, as you're asking that question, I'm, it's not something that jumps out at me. I think that again, that desire for belonging can be a strong pool. And I think that is where it could get complicated. Mm -hmm. If you're, if you found your people, that can be a strong attraction. I mean, that's why I thought of the question. It was exactly when you were talking about belonging and the concept of belonging and which is connected to the concept of meaning, which Jenny Wallace talks about in her book, Never Enough, and is a is, is sort of an older concept that is being revisited now with a lot of amazing data. But those drivers to be socially accepted mm-hmm. and then you find your people and, you know, it doesn't matter if you're neurodivergent or not, you as a kid might find people who are good influences and you might find people who are not. And that's where these zillions of conversations from the adults and kids' lives come in, right? Because the more you know sort of what's going on socially, the more you you can get into conversation about decision-making. And yeah. I want to make sure, Debbie, we talk for a second about being really concrete in our language and our definitions. You know, one of the temptations when people talk about puberty and sex is like people get very euphemistic because they're uncomfortable with the words themselves or with the concepts in general. And I think we want to encourage people to be as concrete as possible with all kids, including autistic people, um, and make sure we're super clear on our language. But I want to close with one thing that came up in our interview with a disabilities rights activist, Emily Ladau, who talked about people assume that people with disabilities are not sexual. Mm-hmm. And don't have sexual urges. And I I just would ask if you wouldn't mind saying a few words about that in the context of neurodivergent people and autistic people that can we just disabuse people of the notion and assumptions about that for a minute? Yeah. Based on the young adults that I know, that is not, uh, that's not an issue. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think everyone's trying to find their people, right? And so, you know, to what you were saying earlier, Cara, like I think when you find your, I know tribe is not an appropriate word to use anymore, but when you find your people in that way, you'll probably be bonding over your neurodivergence. The people you gravitate to are going to be other autistic people, other ADHDers, other neurodivergent people, many of whom also have 
co-occurring mental health challenges. So you're going to be bonding over your depression, your anxiety. You're going to be comparing meds that you're on. Like it's just part of the way this generation is navigating their, their youth. And I think that, yeah, I, I don't think there's any difference. I think you experience it when you feel safe and when you feel like you're, you're with your people and you belong, it may happen later. There's certainly some neurodivergent folks. And I hear from parents who are like, my kid is so disinterested. I want nothing to do with that, which is fine. And there are plenty of neurotypical people who have that same exact experience. So in my experience and in the, the parents that I work with, I don't see any difference in that way. Debbie, it is not at all surprising that we have learned so much from you. We hope you will come back. You are a wealth of information and you are engaging with people in just really deeply connected and meaningful ways. We will put links in the show notes to Tilt Parenting and to your book and make sure that people can find you because they need you. This is neurodivergence. We didn't even talk about the data, but neurodivergence impacts so many people. And so there are going to be lots of grateful listeners. We are two of them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Thank you. I'm so honored. I really appreciate it. We absolutely love hearing your feedback and getting all your questions. So anytime you want to be in touch, email us at thepubertypodcast at gmail.com. If you're looking for great puberty products, like the Oom shorts or the Oom socks or the Oom bra, you get the theme there, go to myoomla.com. If you want more content, you love what we do on the Puberty Podcast and you want to have us come speak or learn more about our book or subscribe to our amazing newsletter, The Awkward Roller Coaster, go to orderofmagnitude.co. Remember, it's .co because we don't have enough money to buy .com. 